Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Random. Berto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We're going to have a great show for you today. As usual, how are you guys doing today? We are out here, out of Washington, D.C. We'll be here for the foreseeable future. Anyway, uh, we are going to have a great show for you today. And I know you want to ask, what is the show? Oh, Bruce Pollard, first person on the chat so far. Now we have two and one fiftieth party system. Uh, you mind explaining that for me, Bruce? Maybe my head is fried, so I don't quite understand that. If you are on YouTube, folks, please give me that thumbs up. Uh, before you even start watching, thumbs up. If you're on uh, uh, Facebook, please go ahead and give us that Facebook good old like. Let us get started. Let the algorithm get churning. Also, please, if you will, tweet, turn, go ahead, share, do all that's necessary so that people can hear our voices, the voices of the progressive mantra. Anyway, folks, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. People are still coming. Look, uh, don't forget, tomorrow we have two shows, one at 11 a.m. Central here and one at noon at Central at KPFT 90.1 FM. That one is on air on the FM channels covering the entire South East Texas as well as on the Internet covering where? The world. Anyway, folks, um, title of the show today, let me get it on screen. Let me get it on screen. Bruce Pollard, 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and the, <laughs> the Joe Manchin and Friend Party. You know what, brother? You have that so right. You have that so right. Anyhow, folks, uh, on the show today, as you can see on the screen, Manchin killing West Virginia. You know, Manchin is one of the big objectors to things like free college, uh, free community college. Why would he not want his state to get educated? He's also against family leave. So instead of being 12 weeks, it's down to four weeks. And all these things are changing. Instead of giving the stipends to the families for uh, in perpetuity, meaning if you need it, you get it. Now, oh, we are going to limit it and, and means test. And look, um, I, I am of, of the feeling that this guy, there's something that I say all the time about politics. And let's specifically, let's say the Democratic Party and the Republican Party for that matter. But I think there are people in the parties not, to, not there for a specific people-powered ideology, but to ensure that both parties are run by the same people. And that's why if you notice, if you take a look at the given, you notice corporations or some permutation thereof give to both parties. And those people that they give to have a certain behavior type. And that behavior type is generally we have to make and keep check so that our population won't ever understand that our economic system screws them so we don't make we don't, we don't talk about giving them more than we have to give. And anytime that line is crossed, we get the Joe Mansions of the world. We get the, and when, when the Affordable Care Act was passing, we got a couple other Democrats. I can't remember the name of the Connecticut the, the Democrat that prevented us from getting much of what we needed. But anyhow, we're here. Folks, if you're just starting up here on YouTube, give us that thumbs up. If you're on Facebook, Facebook Live, please give us that like. Anyhow, uh, title of the show today, Mansion Killing, West Virginia. Also, workers are taking power. Cheney slams GOP. And I interview 
uh, Ray McGinnis, who wrote the book uh, titled uh, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. But you know what? Let's go ahead and get started. Tom C. got a booster shot yesterday. A little under the weather today, but glad my COVID immunity has been refreshed. I'm with you, Tom. I got mine about four weeks ago. I think I told you guys when I got my booster. My wife got her booster and my daughter got her booster. My mother goes for her booster today. So it's important that you're doing the right thing, that we are doing the right thing. Uh, thank you so kindly. Bruce, I hope you're, you've already gotten your booster, my brother. Uh, uh, you, you qualify for it already based on everything that I know about you, sir. Anyhow, let's go ahead and get started. Liz Cheney, yesterday they, they voted to take it to the general floor to uh, transfer Steve Bannon's case to, the, uh, to go ahead and transfer Steve Bannon to you know where. Anyhow, as it turns out, let's go ahead and play what Cheney had to say. Very, very important. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side let's see where is it at there we go Liz Cheney I think my god you've got to see this Liz Cheney took no prisoners let's go ahead and play the speech that she gave at the uh, January 6th commission and then we'll take it on the other side there is no conceivably applicable privilege that could shield Mr. Bannon from testimony on all of the many other topics identified in this committee's subpoena. Because he has categorically refused to appear, we have no choice but to seek consequences for Mr. Bannon's failure to comply. Those consequences are not just important for this investigation. They are important for all congressional investigations. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. And this committee will get to the bottom of that. Let me add one further thought, principally for my Republican colleagues. All agree that America is the greatest nation on the face of God's earth. Truth, justice, and our Constitution have made America great. Almost every one of my colleagues knows in your hearts that what happened on January 6th was profoundly wrong. You all know that there is no evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to have changed the results of the election. You all know that the Dominion voting machines were not corrupted by a foreign power. You know these claims are false. Yet former President Trump repeats them almost daily. And he has now urged Republicans not to vote in 2022 and 2024. This is a prescription for national self-destruction. I ask my colleagues, please consider the fundamental questions of right and wrong here. The American people must know what happened. They must know the truth. All of us who are elected officials must do our duty to prevent the dismantling of the rule of law and to ensure that nothing like that dark day in January ever happens again. Did you see what Liz Cheney did? She itemized each 
thing, one by one, as far as the fallacies that we have the Republicans telling their pew. But you know what? Uh, I am not a Liz Cheney fan, but I tell you that the fact that she came out the way she came out and said the, made those statements about the, it, there was no real voter fraud, the voter machine is not real, it's not, the, the election was not stolen, and all that good stuff, while it won't really have anything, the, the, the crazies won't see straight, there are quite a few Republicans, even ones that will vote for Donald Trump, that will look at that and give it a second look. Good job, Liz Cheney. Keep up the good work. Absolutely so. Good job, Liz Cheney. Anyhow, folks, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard, Puffin. Bruce Pollard, you got it last week. Power to you, brother. Power to you. That, that full immunity is supposed to kick in, I think, within four weeks after you take the vaccine. Uh, anyhow, folks, we continue to have a good one here for you. Folks, if you are just getting on to YouTube, give me that thumbs up on YouTube, the video, so we can make sure that that algorithm works magic for us get you know it but not only in the live version but as it goes into podcasts etc and if you are on uh facebook give us a thumbs up twitch get our like in twitch give us that like if you're on twitter go ahead and follow me egberto willies at egberto willies is my twitter e-g-b-e-r-t-o-w-i-l-l-i-e-s get informed as far as what we're doing etc 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 Biden has no taste, says E2247. E2247 also says, Laquan McDonald, rest in peace, seven years ago. And right now, it's Ram Emanuel confirmation hearing by Senate Foreign Relations. I, I know where you're going, E2247. Puffin says, if we had a Senate in the USA that was not half Russian, we would have arrested Trump by now. He is exactly Rose Williams with us. Hi, Rose. Welcome aboard. Okay, folks, let's continue with the program. Um, Manchin is really misbehaving. Uh, there, there's an article on Common Dream titled, he is, uh, and this is, this is a statement from Ilan Omar. He is not negotiating. He's killing the bill. Is, uh, let me read the first part of that story because a lot of people, you know, everybody wants to treat Manchin as, oh, he's just fighting for his people in West Virginia. Manchin is not fighting for the people in West Virginia. When my daughter went to West Virginia and saw a whole lot of how those people live in the most beautiful of lands, nice mountains, beautiful scenery, but mountains that are cut from the top, coal that's dumped to the side, arsenic in their rivers, all of that because they want no regulations. They want nothing worth having because their representatives are horrendous. And if they need support, they need college, they need all these things to bring them out of the funk that that state is in. But having a Congress, having a senator like Joe Manchin, who's saying, don't give them anything. Let them eat cake. We'll simply use them as refuse, slave labor. And brother, my brothers and sisters in Appalachia, specifically in West Virginia, you thought... You thought slavery only looked like me? It shows you. It's all economic. It's all economic. They don't want you too smart in West Virginia. They don't want you aspiring for too much in West Virginia. They don't want you to know that we, the people, can do much to enhance West Virginia. And it's not a Republican that's screwing you. It's a Democrat. The Republicans have done screwed you a long time ago. But it's your own Democrat, and unless all of you, both Democratic 
and Republican West Virginians call Joe Manchin and say, quit it, you're going down. And unless everybody remembers who his daughter is, one of the CEOs of a pharmaceutical company that is screwing you with DAP Pen, remember that. Remember that this is not somebody looking out for your virtues. This is a person that's using the economic system to screw you. And he continues in the Senate to do it. Let's not forget it. This is not about bipartisan. I want a bipartisan bill. If he's willing not to have a filibuster to protect your voting rights here in Texas and all over, think about it. There's nothing, nothing that we need him. Don't get me wrong. We need him. We need the vote to prevent it from going from to, to McConnell. But the truth of the matter is he's just a mini McConnell. He's just protecting what McConnell stands for as well. Anyhow, my brothers, and oh, let me read some of you before I go to the interview. Ram approved uh, Bush's Iraq war, true. Uh, let's see, Rose says, so true, he's totally corrupt. Uh, Rose also say he's like the owner of the company store, exactly. Buy mansion, get some billionaire is to buy his coal plants, exactly. Uh, E2247 says that Ram should be ambassador anywhere, shouldn't, should be ambassador Anywhere is outrageous. That he should be ambassador is outrageous. That's true. Rosalind Biden has to start playing hardball. I agree. The only thing about it is we have to be very careful with Manchin because he could be at the cusp of killing his career and just saying, to heck with it, I'm going to spite them all and just go give Mitch McConnell the leadership of the Senate again. What we have to do is take it a bit. Let, let, the, let the progressive activists slam... Uh, mansion let the congress people work with him to get the best they can for now and then come 2022 we get we we make him irrelevant by making a large creating a larger liberal senate we make him irrelevant but anyhow let me go ahead and play uh, the interview that we have for today and then we'll take it on the other side chuck todd and his minions were talking about oh the uh, the wage Welcome to another edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have Ray McGinnis. Ray McGinnis is the author of Unanswered Questions, What September 11 Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. McGinnis believes the stories of the families of the victims of September 11th and their efforts to establish an inquiry into the attacks. Uh, he offers a doorway for theological reflection about what it means to live in a post 911 world. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Senor McGuinness, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you to be it's so good to be with you today. It's great being with you. Uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I was born in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, I have uh, studied at the University of Toronto, uh, a Bachelor of Arts degree. Uh, political science, religious studies, history, English literature. Uh, I was uh, a Christian education director and worked at the United Church of Canada, kind of like a Methodist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, United Church of Christ in the USA. And uh, I was uh, involved in leadership development events and conference planning for 18 years. And then I, for the last uh, 18, 19 years, have been teaching writing workshops uh, through my own business uh, across Canada and 
and elsewhere and uh, teaching journal writing workshops and healthcare facilities to help people recover from uh, injury and, uh, and, and illness, uh, helping grief support groups to uh, journal their journey as they go through their journey of grief, having lost someone as well as uh, taking people on nature trails and stopping to write poems and looking at metaphors and everything. So it's, it's, a, it's a really been a good uh, run. And I wrote a book in 2005 called Writing the Sacred, looking at the biblical psalms and helping people write their own new spiritual psalms and poems as they would like to do in the 21st century. So uh, that's, you know, that's what I've been doing. And in a nutshell, I, 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 I am, I've got to be honest, I read about that and I read about that issue, I wanted my audience to hear that. But also more importantly, uh, I wanted to give some context to then, why would you write a book called Unanswered Questions? What the September 11th families asked and the 9-11 commission ignored. What really was the impetus for that book? Yeah, I would call myself the accidental author when it comes to writing about this. I thought somebody else would write the kind of book I've ended up writing. Uh, I, I was in Joshua Tree National Park in southeastern California on September 11th with 60 Americans from 30 states across the USA. And two people there had lost, uh, well, didn't lose, but they had a financial advisor who worked in one of the Twin Towers and they were very worried he would die. He did live, but it was very, you know gripping for them and difficult for everybody uh, and you know and I couldn't leave America for five days because no planes were flying and finally took a bus across from Seattle up to Canada uh, and then my life went on uh, fast forward in 2007 uh, I mean the 9-11 commission was a blip on the screen and the, the reporting up here in Canada was you know very marginal uh, I, I did see Condoleezza Rice uh, testify briefly before I was called to dinner visiting friends and so I was surprised when I went to a bookstore in 2007 uh, uh, called, uh, I was getting, looking for a new book to read in the middle of a writing workshop tour in Canada. And uh, Kristen Breitweiser, who lost her husband, Ron, in the South Tower, had written a book called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow. And I looked at the book and decided to buy it. And I was really surprised that I could go for six years following the news as I do from time to time, sometimes there's a writing workshop for a weekend or a week and I miss things, but I'm generally on top of the news. And how could I go for, five, for six years and not hear anything about the families in this regard? I'd read obituaries reprinted from the New York Times and local papers. And I'd heard people read the names of those they lost on anniversaries. And I'd read a few uh, you know, articles about some of the amazing people who sadly, tragically died that day. But I had not read anything in, in six years or heard anything on the radio or TV that let me know that among the families who lost loved ones, that there were hundreds and hundreds who went to New York, uh, to, to Washington, D.C. to rally in June of 2002, uh, who testified before the Joint Senate and Congressional uh, Intelligence Committees uh, and, and knocked on the doors of members of Congress and Senate to demand an investigation, and including asking the president to do so. And I thought, how could I have missed this whole story, which I learned uh, by the uh, co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission, Lee Hamilton and Thomas Keene, in their memoir, uh, uh, Without Precedent, referred to these families' efforts as one of the best examples of grassroots democracy and citizen advocacy in many decades. And I thought, how could I have missed that story? I mean, I, I knew who Rosa Parks was. She did something, you know, way back in the late 50s uh, to make a difference with civil rights. But here are these people 
who had lost loved ones. And we all talk about the families who lost loved ones and the September 11th families and the, and the 9-11 heroes, the first responders. But here I was going six. So I decided after uh, reading her book, uh, I went to their website, which is still up there now. And you can look at their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions that they asked the 9-11 commission to investigate, which are still were never addressed. Um, 9% of the questions were addressed 70% uh, were never touched on, another about 20% were just sort of briefly grazed on or acknowledged, but uh, it wasn't uh, an investigation. If, if I went to, uh, when I was in school or university, if I had filled out a, an, uh, an exam and only answered 9% of the questions and just briefly mentioned a few others, I wouldn't have gotten a passing grade. So I thought that, uh, you know, and as the years rolled on, so about 2015, you know, I had my dad had had cancer and for a number of years, I wasn't focused on thinking about writing a book or anything like this. But I, it, can, it occurred to me in conversation with a number of friends, relatives in the USA and friends up here, that here, were the, here was this amazing story about these families and a real accessible way, because we all understand the families. Uh, and I thought uh, a way for me to write a book, um, which would be different than, than some other ones out there. There are numbers of other books that are I would say more declarative and assertive around uh, um, American government complicity possibly and writing more hardball political science or history books. And I wanted to write a book that would be uh, accessible for uh, the many thousands of people who'd taken writing workshops from me who were not news junkies, but were interested in personal narrative. And I thought if I write this book and and in addition to some of the information that I would need to write about in terms of what these questions are that weren't addressed, if I layer it with enough personal story and let, you know, lift up excerpts of testimony before the 9-11 commission from Mary Fetchett, who lost her son, Brad, or Mindy Kleinberg, who lost her husband, Alan, or Monica Gabrielle, who lost her husband, Richard, and introduce these 12 people on the Family Steering Committee to the reading audience, plus other first responders and other people in the, in the story then it'll be a book that, that keeps moving from chapter to chapter and it'll be, you know, they, people, they won't be able to put it down. Let, and, me, let me stop yeah. you a second there, uh, Ray, because uh, be, once we start talking about a 9-11 book or a book of 9-11 stories not covered, the first thing that many people are going to think about is, is this some sort of conspiracy theory book? Yes or no? No, I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, it's a historical fact that the families, uh, not all of them, many families and many people, when you lose a loved one uh, and you grieve, uh, the inclination is to tuck in, to grieve and heal and do that in private way off the spotlight of any kind of uh, news cameras or, or, or microphones from reporters. But here you've got uh, families that went to Washington, DC, asked for an investigation, uh, many of the people, of the dozen people on the Family Steering Committee, five of them uh, that I know of, and there may be more, but five of them I know for sure, told the press how they voted in the year 2000, and three of those five voted for the Bush-Cheney ticket. So the people who were involved in, in, in wanting to have an investigation, many of them believe that having voted for, the, for President Bush, that he would be their strongest advocate, that he, of course, would want to know what went wrong. Uh, and, and so... Uh, it's a, it's a story writing about uh, the efforts of the families, uh, the actual questions that they asked the 9-11 commission. And the commissioners, by the way, when they received the hundreds and hundreds of questions from these families, 
they said to the press in March of 2003 that these questions would be a roadmap for how to do the investigation. And so at least the public face of, of how they were receiving the family's questions was with great appreciation. And so it's, it's really, I really write about, you know, what happens behind the scenes, how the families are hopeful. I mean, Mindy Kleinberg said they were always hopeful that the government would answer the questions. And, and yet what, yeah. Let, 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 let's break you there because I, I want to kind of bring it now within the context of the program here and ask specifically, um, uh, you wrote the book to give these people a voice that they hadn't heard uh, from their, a voice that wasn't listened to by their own government. You were, you presented a book that was a part of their voices. Give me an example of some of these voices that weren't heard. Well, uh, some of the, some of the individuals. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, Lori Van Auken lost her husband, Kenneth uh, Van Auken, who died in the North Tower. Um, she lived in New Jersey. Um, uh, Sal, um, Sally Regenhardt is in Manhattan. She lost her, her 28-year-old son, Christian, who was a, a U.S. Marine and now a probationary firefighter with the New York Fire Department for nine months. Uh, Patty Casaza uh, was a nursing student and her husband, John, died in the North Tower. Uh, Monica Gabrielle uh, uh, lived in, Man in Manhattan with her husband, Richard. Uh, you know, she, you know, they, they were, you know, looking forward to retirement in 10 years. Uh, uh, Mary Fetchett lost her son, is up in New, New Haven, Connecticut, I think, or New Canaan, I mean, and uh, her son, Brad, was like 24 years old. Uh, he died in the South Tower. And, and so, I mean, so all these, of these, now these, are these people that, that uh, it, it's tragic that these people have lost uh, family members. Did they do some sort of a uh, research thereafter to kind of find out exactly what they thought happened, why they wanted to go up to Congress and say, hey, you guys have not been telling the whole story? Well, they, they were aware. I mean, Mary Fetchett testifying before the 9-11 Commission on the 31st of March, 2003 said, uh, in, in 1986, there was a Challenger space shuttle with a number of astronauts that sadly died, the 28th of January. And within five days, President Reagan said, we need to find out what went wrong so this doesn't happen again. And here you have uh, the greatest loss of, of, of life on U.S. domestic soil since Pearl Harbor in December of, of 1941. Why wouldn't the government want to know what went wrong, to fix whatever went wrong, to, like whoever was was falling down on the job or whatever, you know, the protocols are so that they can, you know, learn the, tra learn the tough lessons to make the nation safer going forward. Of course. Uh, yeah. Now, and, of, of these people that um, had any of these people, I know they had questions. And of any of these questions, were any of these questions informed by something, some entity that really kind of said, the narrative that we're hearing on national TV isn't necessarily the appropriate narrative. You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting th question about the, the you know the catalyst for the momentum. One of the first things that happens is in September, October of two thousand one, Congress is discussing I think a fourteen fifteen billion dollar bailout package for the airlines, and at that point, somebody on the con congressional floor said. Ooh, ooh, I think we better have some, uh, the families also get some compensation too. 
So this is a big catalyst because you have all of these individual people, many of them who are, I mean, some of them uh, are, are familiar with politics. Some of them, Kristen Breitweiser had training in law, but many of them, I mean, Mary Fetchett said she was never involved in politics in any way before this. Uh, but now you have families gathering together because the government has communicated with them probably by letter and said, you need to come to this hall in New York City or Washington, DC and have a, 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 you know, an information session about the victim compensation fund let me People stop like, you there. i, I yeah. gotta stop you there because this is a political show okay and you the the, mo the most important political statement that you've just made for a program like mine is a statement you just made the government created a 15 billion dollar fund to bail out airlines before it even occurred to them to actually create some support fund for the victims and the victims families of 9-11 casualty, those buildings falling. Did I understand that correctly? That's correct. And, and that is profound. And that tells much about who we are. Lieberman from Connecticut is there. Another prominent uh, member of the Senate is John McCain, Republican from Arizona. So you've got a lot of bipartisan support of Republican and Democrat in the Senate and in Congress who are supporting and helping these families find out, you know, here's a fax machine or here's a photocopier on Washington, D.C., because people are getting dressed up to look uh, presentable and go and knock on doors. So they're finding their way. They're stick handling through it. And then finally, the president says, OK, uh, after a lot of pressure, because Kristen Breitweiser gives a, an electric performance uh, telling the, the uh, Senate and, and congressional intelligence committees in September 18, 2002, that there really needs to be investigation because all the things that they're supposed to go on, all these protocols they're supposed to happen just didn't seem to be going on at all. And so uh, they, ag they agree. And then there was somebody in the White House that said that um, to the press that a train was coming and nothing was going to stop it. And so the president signs this, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead and get to the bottom of this. And then he appoints Henry Kissinger, who's got a long track record of secrecy. Of course. Yeah. So the families gather in late uh, November, or early December, and I think it's early December, and uh, they go to Kissinger's uh, office up on Parker Madison Avenue, and it's cold. They're wearing their winter coats, but he turns up the heat, you know, as high as the thermometer can go, uh, 86 degrees or something. And uh, they're peeling off their coats, and, and he doesn't really want them to stay very long. Uh, and uh, a couple of them, Kristen Breitweiser has done some background checks on, on him, and, and they want to make sure there's no conflict of interest. And he's pouring coffee for the dozen people there. And Lori Van Auken asks, you know, Dr. Kissinger, we just want to make sure that you don't have any conflicts of interest since you're going to head this uh, in investigation, that you don't have any clients by the name of Bin Laden. At that point, he starts to spill coffee all over the coffee table and you know, falls off the, loses his balance and falls off the, the couch and blames it on a fake eye. Uh, many of the women, uh, I think Patty Casaza mentions a lot, they kind of go into, into cleanup mode. They're training as mothers and so on, and they start finding the paper towel and mopping up the, the coffee. But the next day- I wonder why. <laughs> but the next day, Kissinger resigns. And, and so then, then they have uh, Tom Keene, who uh, 
you know, find out later has is on on a board of one of the companies as part of a consortium, very interested in having a pipeline across Afghanistan, and you know. So in, and that, in effect, what you're saying is, in as much as we had a whole lot of dead Americans from a terrorist attack, which was legitimately a terrorist attack, I don't think yeah. you're disputing that there was still money to be made or money that nobody wanted to risk by trying to expand that too much into investigating what families wanted to hear. Is that what I'm understanding, including not going after the Saudis who uh, were kind of escorted out of the country, as I recall? Yes, you know, you, the co-chair is Lee Hamilton. Um, I could say, okay, I mean, Bush is resistant. He's a Republican uh, administration. So let's, you know, a Democrat, Lee Hamilton from uh, Indiana. Who's been, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, Lee Hamilton happens to be, they find out, a best friend of uh, Dick Cheney, a best friend of Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense for many decades. The Hamiltons, Cheneys, and Rumsfelds go off together for vacations from time to time. And uh, then the families, you know, are meeting in, you know, March of, of February, March of 2003, find out that Lee Hamilton is against having any public hearings at all. Doesn't want to have any people coming for subpoena, uh, no, no testifying under oath. You know, and he thinks it's going to be you know, dangerous to do those things. Well, so the fact, yeah. Yeah, let, let me tell you, um, I, I think you, in your book, which has very little in outwardly to what we talk about when we talk about the politics that we do here, prove that even that the politics that we do here affects not only the politics as we see it, but, but other items like 9-11, how the corruption within our economic system, the corruption between our political, socioeconomic system plays into this whole thing. Of course, Hamilton and Cheney goes out to lunch. Of course, these guys are in different parties. Of course, each of them presents the guardians of the gates of the majority party so that the one group in this country that does well continue to do well. And they know no party. They know nothing. They just know about ruling. And I think your book it, uh, present the, I mean, with all imagination as it goes through, presents that in a through a different lens yeah well and i mean the families you know like people expect that the people that they're relating to and getting to get to know i mean they, they have an official liaison with two uh 9-11 commission staff uh they have a front row seat they've given the, the commissioners the questions and then they find out later on that the executive director philip zelico has together with another senior counsel ernest may put together an outline in March of 2003 of the whole 9-11 Commission report, the chapter headings and subheadings. This doesn't come out until the spring of 2004, but Bob McElvain, whose son Bobby died, and he's not on the Family Steering Committee, but he was you know, close, with, and he was also sometimes in part of some of these meetings. He says, just uh, it's, it's mind boggling that you would have an investigation uh, where you prescribe what you think you're going to find before you start to do the investigation. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've also got Zelico, uh, um, his executive secretary, Heidi Hot uh, Karen Hotiker, uh, who had a, a resume from working at U.S. embassies in Europe, expects a certain standard, and so she keeps a phone log and is disco discovers there's numerous phone calls that Zelico is receiving, uh, including herself, from Karl Rove. Right. A, How yeah. many pages are in your book? 
454. It, it seems that way because you have the whole story. Now, look, we are close to uh, getting out of time here. So in, in one minute, tell me a synopsis that you want all of our audience to know and tell them why you want them to check this book out and what it's going to do for them. Okay. I think that, that this book is about uh, the stonewalling and the ignoring of a legitimate inquiry into what happened in a major event. We all live in a post 9-11 world. And I think that democracy is, uh, you know, depends on transparency and accountability and trustworthiness. And when you have a government ignoring and, and trying to get away with addressing questions, even from first responders and family members, you have a problem. And I think that the story is a cautionary tale of what's, uh, what to keep watch for and, and keep vigilant. And so. Ironically, um, you're the, just the way you explain much of what, um, uh, what, what occurred, the intersectionality with what we talk about here is actually quite obvious. Now, um, I always ask the last question, I ask you to answer it in 30 seconds. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Um, <laughs> I would have liked you to ask me about the 9-11 Museum, as I think about it, and, and to think about how that is a, a testament that's there, very physical, but also for your viewers to be curious about what are the more transitory exhibits in museums and galleries and in plays that have messages that are off, off message from what the museum suggests. Ray McGinnis, author of Unanswered Questions, what the September 11th families asked and the 9-11 commission ignored. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Great to be with you. Sorry, guys, I don't know what happened, but, you know, we had a crash. I recovered from the crash on every channel except YouTube, so we had to requeue YouTube. If you go to YouTube, there's a, there's a whole new, uh, new window for YouTube right now. Anyhow, sorry for that happening. I am not exactly sure what occurred there. It seemed to have something to do with us extending the screen because as we extended the screen, something occurred. Anyhow... Let's see, continuing, I have one more. Oh, it's time for me to do my ask. Uh, folks, please remember, if you like what you see, if you are on YouTube, please go ahead, first of all, and give us a thumbs up. Otherwise, please also consider becoming a part of our posse. How do you, do, uh, how do you become a part of posse? Hit that join button. If you don't see a join button, you can alternatively go, uh, let's see, you can alternatively go to politicsunright.com slash YouTube, politicsunright.com slash YouTube, which I'm putting into the screen right now. Likewise, you, uh, you can go ahead and support us on Patreon, politicsunright.com slash Patreon, politicsunright.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or politicsunright.com slash PayPal, politicsunright.com slash PayPal. Check out our books. I promise you, you'll read the three books, one book or whatever, and you'll feel that you know how to handle the message quite a bit better go to politicsandright.com slash books politicsandright.com slash books and you can get our t-shirts cups and all the good stuff at politicsandright.com slash store politicsandright.com slash store you can find all the different ways to support us at politicsandright.com slash support and that has a catch-all 
tells you all the different manners. We want to make sure that we can give you the easiest manner for you to provide support for this particular progressive program to ensure that we get the progressive message out. I don't want to miss this particular video, so let's, I'm going to go straight to it right now because it's a doozy. Chuck Todd and his minions were talking about, oh, the, the wage the people, there's a whole lot more jobs than there are people now, and workers have the power now. And that is absolutely true. But you know what? Workers have always had the power. They just never asserted it because of the enslaved mentality that this economic system had placed in all, in all of our minds. But when we realize that we have the power, whether there are shortages of jobs or not, we have the power because collectively we could always be our brother's keepers and not allow corporations to get our case. But here we have now a Republican pundit that is trying to to say, oh, well, if you know, if we keep getting these wage increases, it will be inflationary. I want you to listen to the piece first. It's all good, most of it, till he has those kinds of statements. And then I want to talk about inflationary pressures based on wages. Listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. Kimberly, workers have never had more leverage. And when you look around, and this is like one of those things that's like every, oh, every national news organization discovered strikes this week. But the fact <laughs> is, it is happening. Look, we've seen it in our own organization, more openness to organizing, more openness to unions. This is one of the more interesting consequences of COVID. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's an accelerator, actually, because mm -hmm. we saw that sort of movement toward unionization in places like newsrooms coming up for a couple of years before this. And then you add COVID, where people realized, okay, if I'm not making enough money, if if I don't have enough benefits and you're calling me essential and forcing me to go to the job, I'm rethinking about what this means. And that really put more leverage uh, on the part of workers before companies could pay them or not pay them whatever they want to. And things have changed in a really rapid way. And that's what this uh, strike tober is representing. And, and John, this is not, you know, there was always to me a very distinct line, you know, on labor unions between Democrats and Republicans. How about the Trump base? No, look, I, I think this is a generational moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For the last 20 years, people have been frightened to lose their jobs. It's not just because of the economic dislocations of the, of the meltdown of 2008. Because of health care and the worries about changing your job, because of the stuff that happened as a result of 9-11, all kinds of things Almost all the power in the United States has been in the hands of employers, in part because of the anxiety of the workforce. And that goes from the very poor to the very wealthy. That is an anxiety shared by everybody. And suddenly, we have 9 or 10 or 11 million jobs open in the United States. And that's new. And I think the psychology of the employers or these corporations have yet to shift. I mean, they know they need to pay yeah. people a lot more money. There are all these, you know, Amazon is advertising, right. paying people a lot more than $15 an hour and all of that. But I think at John Deere and some of these other places, my guess is that the corporate culture has not yet shifted into the idea that we got to be a lot nicer to our workforce. Yeah, I mean, look, people who in Washington are surprised by this dynamic have fundamentally misunderstood what happened in the pandemic when people with white-collar jobs stayed home and complained about how hard it was to work on Zoom, yes. and people with blue-collar jobs who were essential went to work every day and braved the pandemic. I mean, if you think you had a hard time working from home, or you still are while you, are, while you were working on Zoom, and you don't understand why folks who've been out in it every day are striking and are very upset... I don't know what to tell you. And, and our service economy is a very labor-intensive exactly. economy. 
And now we're having, you know, one of the, uh, let me put up some of the companies here. Instacart is one of the places that's, that's having one of these labor. I mean, I, I do think that this new sector of the economy that manufacturing, manufacturing workers were really important to our economy in the 50s and 60s. Now it's the service The economy, service, the deliverers. Right. You know. The DoorDash, yes. the Instacart, people who they're are... they're not paid very well. They're not paid very well. And so, right, are we going to have a generational change that this is COVID, we're going to look back 20 years from now and say that was the instigator for this? Or are we going to wake up three years from now and say, oh, well, it was COVID, and guess what? We're going to go back to normal because of all these other structural challenges we still have, which is, you know, getting back to healthcare that is still a fundamental problem or you know so many of the other inequities that we have in our system so look i'm very interested to see where this all goes because the disruptors that we've expected in the past to make significant changes at least in our politics whether it was 9/11 or whether it was um, yeah. the pandemic didn't make big structural changes to our politics but our economy that's a whole different story. All right, and go ahead. I was just say, speaking of the economy, though, this is all happening at a time of rising and apparently non-transitory inflation. Right. And if wages have to go up significantly, that's inflation too. I mean, there are there are inflationary. This is a potential inflationary spiral. You want to talk about political consequences? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry that people term. can talk yeah. about how this might be great. This might be term. great for Democrats because it's ad, new okay. activism and all of that. This is not good for Biden either way. It's not good for Democrats either way. They have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and we could be looking at inflation continuing to go up in part justifiably in order yeah. to pay these Kimberly, people. It's a more. weird economy. We have yep. plenty of jobs. Yep. And it costs more to, to just keep your house. Yes, I mean, but one part of that is yeah, you can have fears about inflation, but the, the structure was unsustainable. You had this gig economy where people mm -hmm. were working second and third jobs just to keep food on the table, just to pay for the health care that, that the law required them to have. That was going to be unsustainable. So this, this uh, you know, conflagration of, of issues really brought it to the fore. And yes, you have these open jobs, but I think when you look at it study after study, it shows if you pay people more, they will take the jobs. It's really shifting from that corporate perspective that they can have large profits to saying, no, we actually, to be profitable, you need to treat your employees well. And that is so important. If you want to be profitable, treat your employees well. But here's what they don't, and I wish these pundits would articulate it a little bit better. They talk about increasing wages. In other words, that's on one side of the balance sheet increases uh, inflation. Why? Because to pay people more, you have to raise the prices of your goods if you want to keep the profits the same. But here's the other part of the equation they don't tell you. To constantly have rising profits, to constantly have the rising price of stocks, you always hear people talk about growth, growth, growth. There are two ways to attain growth, either the totality of growth or the delta of growth. The delta of growth means you reduce all your expenses so that you actually have more profits and those profits go to the few who own the corporation. Or you simply raise prices again so that the profits will be as high as those who are investing want it to be. So they talk about inflationary pressures caused by wages. What about inflationary uh, uh, causes by the amount that you're paying the investors, the millions, the 
billions of trillions of dollars that have gone in the in the pharmaceutical industries to the shareholders that's inflationary and it didn't go to the employees it went to the shareholders extracting money out of the middle class extracting money out of the poor out of our taxes out of the government that's inflationary has nothing to do with wages let's understand economics appropriately and if we did understand economics we would under and, and that's why we need to teach that to our people that's why people need to listen to these programs that's why people need to promote these programs why they need to share these programs because here is the deal our wages people say well we don't want to pay the employees so much and you'll even have some employees saying that if, if, if wages go up too much it's going to be inflation and it'll cause a, a recession and then you'll say well what a, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute if profit gets too high that's coming out of the same pot isn't that going to cause a recession for having profits too high look uh, we, what we have and we've had in this country since its inception is the theft of the labor and intellect of the American people. We have an economic system that abuses people. It is a uh, it, it was it first started as slavery and indentured servitude with a few employees. Now we have a complete form of what I call antiseptic slavery for most people. And when we understand that. We will start trying to liberate ourselves from a, an economic system that depends on paying us less than we are worth. And anytime we ask for more, they say that is inflationary or we will have to raise prices. Well, you drop your profits. You drop your profits, which means you are sitting on your butt doing nothing while other people work for your benefit. If that isn't antiseptic slavery, I don't know what is. You know, uh, when you're indoctrinated into a, a particular system, it's really hard to get it, right? It, it, is, it is hard to believe that all our lives, we were, we, we were led to believe that somehow it is okay for somebody to sit on top, calling themselves an executive, don't necessarily, don't necessarily know how to type, don't necessarily know how to think, just knows how the mechanisms of business work. And for that person, for knowing how the mechanism of this man-made created business work, that they should command so much more than all those that create, all those that cre put the intellect in there. It is so hard for me to look at you and tell you the president of that company has no more value than the janitor that is keeping the toilet clean. Look, I'm an engineer. There's, there's a certain feeling that you may want to know, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, that somehow you are so much better than that person sweeping the floor, that person cleaning the toilet, that person unhooking the toilet. Look, should the doctor command more money than the person cleaning the toilet? Yes, because the doctor had to do some more training for that. But is it that that toilet cleaner is useless or that toilet cleaner has less humanity or that toilet cleaner should make a thousand times less than me? Hell no. Because of that, I can clean a toilet. The toilet cleaner cannot create a bridge. So uh, there, there's di there are differences in skills. But we are all humans and we are all necessary. But I tell you what is interesting. What we pay for a skill of an executive I can easier teach a plumber not a plumber I can easier teach somebody who cleans the toilet 
I can easier teach somebody who cleans a toilet to be an executive than I can teach him or her how to be an engineer or how to be a doctor. But that person who is up there makes so much more than the person who is cleaning the toilet. There is a distortion in worth in our country, in the world, created by this form of capitalism that does not value what needs to be valued. And we were indoctrinated into having a reverence for these executives, having a reverence for certain folks that mean nothing, having a reverence for the stockbroker. We have to rethink things so that we can command what we're really worth. Bruce says, nurses go on strike for $3 million total raise. Our CEO gets $10 million bonus for hospitals profit. Go figure. Exactly. There you go. Rose, can you imagine how miserable we all would be in our places of work without an essential worker such as janitors? Exactly. Exactly. And that is what over the years I've come to appreciate. The worth of absolutely everybody. That we are all worthy. And that me, that my, my worth isn't orders of magnitude better than that janitor at all. I tell you something else. In other words, I spent four more years educating myself in engineering than that janitor who came out of college and became a governor, a janitor. And for investing that four years, we have an economic system that rewards me superbly forever. In the, in the parlance of Donald Trump, oh, I'm smart, that's why. That's not the case, brothers and sisters. We have to remember this. Amortize my four years. Amortize the difficulty for what I did. Amortize the difficulty for what, the, what Bruce as a chemist, as a, as a scientist did. Maximize the, uh, amortize the, 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 the extra work that I put in. And start from a base of a job that requires little skills. And then we can start talking about fair wages. We have to rethink. We have to rethink. Uh, Nanette Birdsmith says, the employer would be most likely expect everybody to pick up the slack. <laughs> yeah, I know, Nanette. Anyway, folks, uh, let me salute everybody before I get out of here. Nanette Birdsmith, welcome aboard. Bridge MCP, welcome aboard. Rose Williams, Bruce Pollard. Uh, Melanie Keelan, Bridge MCP, I named you already. Nanette Birdsmith, I think I called you out. Tom C., Courtney the SLP, E2247, welcome aboard. Uh, I'm just calling you because I don't think I did all of that in the beginning. Tom Sarnik, also Tom C. Uh, let's see who else we got here. If I miss you, throw, throw another email into Puffin, welcome aboard, so that I can call you. You know, I love to call my folks out. I like to call everybody out because I'm honored to have you here. Uh, who else have I got? Rose Williams, I think I called you out. You know, the brain's going bad, you know. Anyhow, let's continue here. The brain is overstressed. Anybody else to salute? All right, nobody else to salute. Anyhow, folks, thank you so kindly for being here. Remember, if you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. If you're on Facebook Live, give us a like. If you're on Twitch, give us a like. If you're on uh, uh, Twitter, go ahead and follow Egberto Willis. And please don't forget to support us. How do you support us? I'm going to just give you one link now. Go to politicsdoneright.com slash support. And please choose some one of those methods to support us. That is how we can continue 
doing what we are doing. Thank you so kindly for being here with me. I cannot tell you how appreciative I am of our audience, of our peeps. Thank you so kindly. My name is Egberto Willis, and you know how this ends. I am Egberto Willis. It's politics and right. And what? I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.